0: Chapter Sixteen Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixteen Part Two The Colonel led the way into a room at the back of the house upon the ground floor light and of fair dimensions, but exquisitely uncomfortable, having nothing in it but the four cold white walls and ceiling, a mean carpet, a dreary waste of dining-table, reaching from end to end, and a bewildering collection of cane-bottomed chairs. In the further region of this banqueting-hall was a stove, garnished on either side with a great brass spittoon, and shaped in itself like three little iron barrels set up on end in a fender, and joined together on the principle of the Siamese twins. Before it, swinging himself in a rocking-chair, lounged a large gentleman with his hat on, who amused himself by spitting alternately into the spittoon on the right hand of the stove and the spittoon on the left, and then working his way back again in the same order. A negro lad in a soiled white jacket was busily engaged in placing on the table two long rows of knives and forks relieved at intervals by jugs of water. And, as he travelled down one side of this festive board, he straightened with his dirty hands the dirtier cloth, which was all askew, and had not been removed since breakfast. The atmosphere of this room was rendered intensely hot and stifling by the stove, but being further flavoured by a sickly gush of soup from the kitchen, and by such remote suggestions of tobacco as lingered within the brazen receptacles already mentioned, It became, to a stranger's senses, almost insupportable. The gentleman in the rocking-chair, having his back towards them, and being much engaged in his intellectual pastime, was not aware of their approach until the colonel, walking up to the stove, contributed his might towards the support of the left-hand spittoon. Just as the Major—for it was the Major—bore down upon it. Major Pawkins then reserved his fire, and, looking upwards, said, with a peculiar air of quiet weariness, like a man who had been up all night, an air which Martin had already observed, both in the Colonel and Mr. Jefferson Brick, "'Well, Colonel!' "'Here is a gentleman from England, Major,' the Colonel replied, "'who has concluded to locate himself here "'if the amount of compensation suits him.' "'I am glad to see you, sir,' observed the Major, "'shaking hands with Martin,' and not moving a muscle of his face. "'You are pretty bright, I hope.' "'Never better,' said Martin. "'You are never likely to be,' returned the Major. "'You will see the sunshine here.' "'I think I remember to have seen it shine at home sometimes,' said Martin, smiling. "'I think not,' replied the Major. He said so with a stoical indifference, certainly, but still in a tone of firmness which admitted of no further dispute on that point. When he had thus settled the question— he put his hat a little on one side for the greater convenience of scratching his head, and saluted Mr. Jefferson Brick with a lazy nod. Major Pawkins, a gentleman of Pennsylvanian origin, was distinguished by a very large skull and a great mass of yellow forehead, in deference to which commodities it was currently held in bar-rooms and other such places of resort that the Major was a man of huge sagacity— He was further to be known by a heavy eye and a dull, slow manner, and for being a man of that kind who, mentally speaking, requires a deal of room to turn himself in. But in trading on his stock of wisdom, he invariably proceeded on the principle of putting all the goods he had, and more, into his window, and that went a great way with his constituency of admirers. It went a great way, perhaps, with Mr. Jefferson Brick, who took occasion to whisper in Martin's ear, One of the most remarkable men in our country, sir. It must not be supposed, however, that the perpetual exhibition in the marketplace of all his stock in trade for sale or hire was the Major's sole claim to a very large share of sympathy and support. He was a great politician, and the one article of his creed, in reference to all public obligations involving the good faith and integrity of his country, was— RUN A MOIST PEN, SLICK THROUGH EVERYTHING, AND START FRESH. This made him a patriot. In commercial affairs he was a bold speculator. In plainer words, he had a most distinguished genius for swindling, and could start a bank, or negotiate a loan, or form a land-jobbing company, entailing ruin, pestilence, and death on hundreds of families, with any gifted creature in the Union. This made him an admirable man of business— He could hang about a bar-room, discussing the affairs of the nation, for twelve hours together, and in that time could hold forth with more intolerable dullness, chew more tobacco, smoke more tobacco, drink more rum toddy, mint-julep, gin-sling, and cocktail, than any private gentleman of his acquaintance. This made him an orator, and a man of the people. In a word, the major was a rising character, and a popular character— and was in a fair way to be sent by the popular party to the State House of New York, if not in the end to Washington itself. But as a man's private prosperity does not always keep pace with his patriotic devotion to public affairs, and, as fraudulent transactions have their downs as well as ups, the Major was occasionally under a cloud. Hence, just now, Mrs. Pawkins kept a boarding-house, and Major Pawkins rather loafed his time away than otherwise. "'You have come to visit our country, sir, "'at a season of great commercial depression,' said the Major. "'At an alarming crisis,' said the Colonel. "'At a period of unprecedented stagnation,' said Mr. Jefferson Brick. "'I am sorry to hear that,' returned Martin. "'It's not likely to last, I hope.' Martin knew nothing about America, or he would have known perfectly well that if its individual citizens to a man are to be believed— It always is depressed, and always is stagnated, and always is at an alarming crisis, and never was otherwise, though as a body they are ready to make oath upon the evangelists at any hour of the day or night that it is the most thriving and prosperous of all countries on the habitable globe. "'It's not likely to last, I hope,' said Martin. "'Well,' returned the Major, "'I expect we shall get along somehow, and come right in the end.' "'We are an elastic country,' said the rowdy journal. "'We are a young lion,' said Mr. Jefferson Brick. "'We have revivifying and vigorous principles within ourselves,' observed the Major. "'Shall we drink a bitter afore-dinner, Colonel?' The Colonel assenting to this proposal with great alacrity, Major Pawkins proposed an adjournment to a neighbouring bar-room, which, as he observed, was only in the next block. He then referred Martin to Mrs. Pawkins for all particulars connected with the rate of board and lodging, and informed him that he would have the pleasure of seeing that lady at dinner, which would soon be ready, as the dinner hour was two o'clock, and it only wanted a quarter now. This reminded him that if the bidder were to be taken at all, there was no time to lose, so he walked off without more ado, and left them to follow if they thought proper. When the Major rose from his rocking-chair before the stove, and so disturbed the hot air and balmy whiff of soup which fanned their brows, the odour of stale tobacco became so decidedly prevalent as to leave no doubt of its proceeding mainly from that gentleman's attire. Indeed, as Martin walked behind him to the bar-room, he could not help thinking that the great square major, in his listlessness and languor, looked very much like a stale weed himself— such as might be hoed out of the public garden, with great advantage to the decent growth of that preserve, and tossed on some congenial hill. They encountered more weeds in the bar-room, some of whom, being thirsty souls as well as dirty, were pretty stale in one sense, and pretty fresh in another. Among them was a gentleman who, as Martin gathered from the conversation that took place over the bitter, "'started that afternoon for the Far West on a six-month's business tour, "'and who, as his outfit and equipment for this journey, "'had just such another shiny hat and just such another little pale valise "'as had composed the luggage of the gentleman who came from England in the screw. "'They were walking back very leisurely, "'Martin arm-in-arm with Mr. Jefferson Brick, "'and the Major and the Colonel side by side before them when, as they came within a house or two of the Major's residence, they heard a bell ringing violently. The instant this sound struck upon their ears, the Colonel and the Major darted off, dashed up the steps, and in at the street door, which stood ajar, like lunatics, while Mr. Jefferson Brick, detaching his arm from Martin's, made a precipitate dive in the same direction and vanished also. "'Good Heaven!' thought Martin. "'The premises are on fire!' IT WAS AN ALARM-BELL. BUT THERE WAS NO SMOKE TO BE SEEN, NOR ANY FLAME, NOR WAS THERE ANY SMELL OF FIRE. AS MARTIN FALTERED ON THE PAVEMENT, THREE MORE GENTLEMEN, WITH HORROR AND AGITATION DEPICTED IN THEIR FACES, CAME PLUNGING WILDLY ROUND THE STREET-CORNER, JOSTLED EACH OTHER ON THE STEPS, STRUGGLED FOR AN INSTANT, AND RUSHED INTO THE HOUSE, A CONFUSED HEAP OF ARMS AND LEGS. UNABLE TO BEAR IT ANY LONGER, MARTIN FOLLOWED. Even in his rapid progress he was run down, thrust aside, and passed by two more gentlemen, stark mad, as it appeared, with fierce excitement. "'Where is it?' cried Martin breathlessly to a negro whom he encountered in the passage. "'In a eatin' room, suh. Colonel, suh, him kep a seat side himself, suh.' "'A seat?' cried Martin. "'For a dinner, suh.' Martin stared at him for a moment, and burst into a hearty laugh, to which the negro, out of his natural good humour and desire to please, so heartily responded that his teeth shone like a gleam of light. "'You're the pleasantest fellow I have seen yet,' said Martin, clapping him on the back, "'and give me a better appetite than bitters.' With this sentiment, he walked into the dining-room and slipped into a chair next to Colonel, which that gentleman, by this time nearly through his dinner— had turned down in reserve for him, with its back against the table. It was a numerous company—eighteen or twenty, perhaps—of these, some five or six were ladies, who sat wedged together in a little phalanx by themselves. All the knives and forks were working away at a rate that was quite alarming. Very few words were spoken, and everybody seemed to eat his utmost in self-defense— as if a famine were expected to set in before breakfast-time to-morrow morning, and it had become high time to assert the first law of nature. The poultry, which may perhaps be considered to have formed the staple of the entertainment, for there was a turkey at the top, a pair of ducks at the bottom, and two fowls in the middle, disappeared as rapidly as if every bird had had the use of its wings and had flown in desperation down a human throat. The oysters, stewed and pickled, leaped from their capacious reservoirs and slid by scores into the mouths of the assembly. The sharpest pickles vanished, whole cucumbers at once, like sugar-plums, and no man winked his eye. Great heaps of indigestible matter melted away as ice before the sun. It was a solemn and an awful thing to see. Dyspeptic individuals bolted their food in wedges, "'feeding not themselves, but broods of nightmares "'who were continually standing at livery within them. spare men, with lank and rigid cheeks, "'came out unsatisfied from the destruction of heavy dishes, "'and glared with watchful eyes upon the pastry. "'What Mrs. Pawkins felt each day at dinner-time "'is hidden from all human knowledge. "'But she had one comfort. It was very soon over. "'When the Colonel had finished his dinner,' which event took place while Martin, who had sent his plate for some turkey, was waiting to begin, he asked him what he thought of the boarders, who were from all parts of the Union, and whether he would like to know any particulars concerning them. "'Pray,' said Martin, "'who is that sickly little girl opposite, with the tight round eyes? I don't see anybody here who looks like her mother, or who seems to have charge of her.' "'Do you mean the matron in blue, sir?' asked the colonel, with emphasis." "'That is Mrs. Jefferson Brick, sir.' "'No, no,' said Martin. "'I mean the little girl, like a doll, directly opposite.' "'Well, sir,' cried the Colonel, "'that is Mrs. Jefferson Brick.' Martin glanced at the Colonel's face, but he was quite serious. "'Bless my soul! I suppose there will be a young Brick, then, one of these days,' said Martin. "'There are two young Bricks already, sir,' returned the Colonel." The matron looked so uncommonly like a child herself, that Martin could not help saying as much. "'Yes, sir,' returned the Colonel, "'but some institutions develop human nature. Others retard it.' "'Jefferson Brick,' he observed, after a short silence, in commendation of his correspondent, "'is one of the most remarkable men in our country, sir.' This had passed almost in a whisper, for the distinguished gentleman alluded to sat on Martin's other hand. "'Pray, Mr. Brick,' said Martin, turning to him, and asking a question more for conversation's sake than from any feeling of interest in its subject, "'Who is that—' he was going to say young, but thought it prudent to eschew the word— "'that very short gentleman yonder with the red nose?' "'That is Professor Mullet, sir,' replied Jefferson. "'May I ask what he is professor of?' asked Martin. "'Of education, sir,' said Jefferson Brick. "'A sort of schoolmaster, possibly?' Martin ventured to observe. "'He is a man of fine moral elements, sir, and not commonly endowed,' said the war correspondent. "'He felt it necessary at the last election for president "'to repudiate and denounce his father, who voted on the wrong interest. "'He has since written some powerful pamphlets under the signature of Souterb, or Brutus reversed. "'He is one of the most remarkable men in our country, sir.' "'There seemed to be plenty of them,' thought Martin, at any rate. Pursuing his inquiries, Martin found that there were no fewer than four majors present—two colonels, one general, and a captain—so that he could not help thinking how strongly officered the American militia must be, and wondering very much whether the officers commanded each other, or, if they did not, where on earth the privates came from. There seemed to be no man there without a title— FOR THOSE WHO HAD NOT ATTAINED TO MILITARY HONORS WERE EITHER DOCTORS, PROFESSORS, OR REVERENDS. THREE VERY HARD AND DISAGREEABLE GENTLEMEN WERE ON MISSIONS FROM NEIGHBOURING STATES, ONE ON MONETARY AFFAIRS, ONE ON POLITICAL, ONE ON SECTARIAN. AMONG THE LADIES THERE WERE MRS. Pawkins, WHO WAS VERY STRAIGHT, BONY, AND SILENT, AND A WIRY-FACED OLD DAMSEL, WHO HELD STRONG SENTIMENTS TOUCHING THE RIGHTS OF WOMEN, AND HAD diffused THE SAME IN LECTURES but the rest were strangely devoid of individual traits of character, insomuch that any one of them might have changed minds with the other, and nobody would have found it out. These, by the way, were the only members of the party who did not appear to be among the most remarkable people in the country. Several of the gentlemen got up, one by one, and walked off as they swallowed their last morsel, pausing generally by the stove for a minute or so to refresh themselves at the brass spittoons. A few sedentary characters, however, remained at table full a quarter of an hour, and did not rise until the ladies rose, when all stood up. "'Where are they going?' asked Martin, in the ear of Mr. Jefferson Brick. "'To their bedrooms, sir.' "'Is there no dessert or other interval of conversation?' asked Martin, who was disposed to enjoy himself after his long voyage. "'We are a busy people here, sir, and have no time for that,' was the reply." So the ladies passed out in single file, Mr. Jefferson Brick and such other married gentlemen as were left, acknowledging the departure of their other halves by a nod, and there was an end of them. Martin thought this an uncomfortable custom, but he kept his opinion to himself for the present, being anxious to hear and inform himself by the conversation of the busy gentleman who now lounged about the stove— as if a great weight had been taken off their minds by the withdrawal of the other sex, and who made a plentiful use of the spittoons and their toothpicks. It was rather barren of interest, to say the truth, and the greater part of it may be summed up in one word—dollars. All their cares, hopes, joys, affections, virtues, and associations seemed to be melted down into dollars— Whatever the chance contributions that fell into the slow cauldron of their talk, they made the gruel thick and slab with dollars. Men were weighed by their dollars, measures gauged by their dollars. Life was auctioneered, appraised, put up and knocked down for its dollars. The next respectable thing to dollars was any venture having their attainment for its end. The more of that worthless ballast— honour and fair dealing, which any man cast overboard from the ship of his good name and good intent, the more ample stowage-room he had for dollars. Make commerce one huge lie and mighty theft. Deface the banner of the nation for an idle rag. Pollute it star by star, and cut out stripe by stripe as from the arm of a degraded soldier. Do anything for dollars. What is a flag to them? One who rides at all hazards of limb and life in the chase of a fox, will prefer to ride recklessly at most times. So it was with these gentlemen. He was the greatest patriot, in their eyes, who brawled the loudest, and who cared the least for decency. He was their champion who, in the brutal fury of his own pursuit, could cast no stigma upon them for the hot knavery of theirs. Thus Martin learned, in the five minutes' straggling talk about the stove, that to carry pistols into legislative assemblies, and swords in sticks, and other such peaceful toys, to seize opponents by the throat as dogs or rats might do, to bluster, bully, and overbear by personal assailment, were glowing deeds. Not thrusts and stabs at freedom, striking far deeper into her house of life than any sultan's scimitar could reach, but rare incense on her altars, having a grateful scent in patriotic nostrils— and curling upward to the seventh heaven of fame. Once or twice, when there was a pause, Martin asked such questions as naturally occurred to him, being a stranger, about the national poets, the theatre, literature, and the arts. But the information which these gentlemen were in a condition to give him on such topics did not extend beyond the effusions of such master spirits of the time as Colonel Diver, Mr. Jefferson Brick, and others. Renowned, as it appeared, for excellence in the achievement of a peculiar style of broadside essay called a screamer. We are a busy people, sir, said one of the captains, who was from the West, and have no time for reading mere notions. We don't mind 'em if they come to us in newspapers along with almighty strong stuff of another sort, but darn your books. Here the general, who appeared to grow quite faint at the bare thought of reading anything which was neither mercantile nor political, and was not in a newspaper, inquired, "'If any gentleman would drink some?' Most of the company, considering this a very choice and seasonable idea, lounged out one by one to the bar-room in the next block. Thence they probably went to their stores and counting-houses— thence to the bar-room again, to talk once more of dollars, and enlarge their minds with the perusal and discussion of screamers, and thence each man to snore in the bosom of his own family. Which would seem, said Martin, pursuing the current of his own thoughts, to be the principal recreation they enjoy in common. With that, he fell amusing again on dollars, demagogues, and bar-rooms, debating within himself whether busy people of this class were really as busy as they claimed to be, or only had an inaptitude for social and domestic pleasure. It was a difficult question to solve, and the mere fact of its being strongly presented to his mind by all that he had seen and heard was not encouraging. He sat down at the deserted board, and becoming more and more despondent, as he thought of all the uncertainties and difficulties of his precarious situation, sighed heavily. Now, there had been at the dinner-table a middle-aged man, with a dark eye and a sunburnt face, who had attracted Martin's attention by having something very engaging and honest in the expression of his features, but of whom he could learn nothing from either of his neighbours, who seemed to consider him quite beneath their notice. He had taken no part in the conversation round the stove, nor had he gone forth with the rest. And now, when he heard Martin sigh for the third or fourth time, he interposed with some casual remark, as if he desired, without obtruding himself upon a stranger's notice, to engage him in cheerful conversation if he could. His motive was so obvious, and yet so delicately expressed, that Martin felt really grateful to him, and showed him so in the manner of his reply. "'I will not ask you,' said this gentleman with a smile, as he rose and moved towards him, how you like my country, for I can quite anticipate your feeling on that point. But, as I am an American, and consequently bound to begin with a question, I'll ask you how you like the Colonel. "'You are so very frank,' returned Martin, "'that I have no hesitation in saying I don't like him at all, though I must add that I am beholden to him for his civility in bringing me here, and arranging for my stay, on pretty reasonable terms, by the way,' he added— "'remembering that the Colonel had whispered him to that effect before going out. "'Not much, beholden,' said the stranger dryly. "'The Colonel occasionally boards packet-ships, I have heard, "'to glean the latest information for his journal, "'and he occasionally brings strangers to board here, "'I believe with a view to the little percentage which attaches to those good offices, "'and which the hostess deducts from his weekly bill. "'I don't offend you, I hope,' he added, seeing that Martin reddened. "My dear sir," returned Martin, as they shook hands, "how is that possible? To tell you the truth, I am-yes?" said the gentleman, sitting down beside him. "I am rather at a loss, since I must speak plainly," said Martin, getting the better of his hesitation, "to know how this colonel escapes being beaten." "Well, he has been beaten once or twice," remarked the gentleman, quietly. He is one of a class of men in whom our own Franklin, so long ago as ten years before the close of the last century, foresaw our danger and disgrace. Perhaps you don't know that Franklin, in very severe terms, published his opinion that those who were slandered by such fellows as this colonel, having no sufficient remedy in the administration of this country's laws, or in the decent and right-minded feeling of its people, were justified in retorting on such public nuisances by means of a stout cudgel. "'I was not aware of that,' said Martin, "'but I am very glad to know it, and I think it worthy of his memory. "'Especially—' "'Here he hesitated again. "'Go on,' said the other, smiling as if he knew what stuck in Martin's throat.' Especially, pursued Martin, as I can already understand that it may have required great courage, even in his time, to write freely on any question which was not a party one in this very free country. "'Some courage, no doubt,' returned his new friend. "'Do you think it would require any to do so now?' "'Indeed, I think it would, and not a little,' said Martin. "'You are right—so very right that I believe no satirist could breathe this air—' If another juvenile, or swift, could rise up among us to-morrow, he would be hunted down. If you have any knowledge of our literature, and can give me the name of any man, American born and bred, who has anatomized our follies as a people, and not as this or that party, and who has escaped the foulest and most brutal slander, the most inveterate hatred and intolerant pursuit, it will be a strange name in my ears, believe me.' In some cases I could name to you, where a native writer has ventured on the most harmless and good-humoured illustrations of our vices or defects, it has been found necessary to announce that in a second edition the passage has been expunged, or altered, or explained away, or patched into praise.' "'And how has this been brought about?' asked Martin, in dismay. "'Think of what you have seen and heard to-day, beginning with the Colonel,' said his friend, and ask yourself. "'How they came about is another question.' HEAVEN FORBID THAT THEY SHOULD BE SAMPLES OF THE INTELLIGENCE AND VIRTUE OF AMERICA, BUT THEY COME UPPERMOST AND IN GREAT NUMBERS, AND TOO OFTEN REPRESENT IT. WILL YOU WALK? THERE WAS A CORDIAL CANDOR IN HIS MANNER, AND AN ENGAGING CONFIDENCE THAT IT WOULD NOT BE ABUSED, A MANLY BEARING ON HIS OWN PART, AND A SIMPLE RELIANCE ON THE MANLY FAITH OF A STRANGER, WHICH MARTIN HAD NEVER SEEN BEFORE. HE LINKED HIS ARM readily IN THAT OF THE AMERICAN gentleman, AND THEY WALKED OUT TOGETHER. It was, perhaps, to men like this, his new companion, that a traveller of honoured name, who trod those shores now nearly forty years ago, and woke upon that soil, as many have done since, to blots and stains upon its high pretensions, which, in the brightness of his distant dreams, were lost to view, appealed in these words. Oh, but for such Columbia's days were done, rank without ripeness, quickened without sun, crude at the surface, rotten at the core, her fruits would fall before her spring were o'er. End of chapter sixteen